Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswell.com. As you come back in and take a seat, I just want to mention uh, there is a connection card in your bulletin. If you're new here and you fill that out, one of my favorite things to do is to meet with folks that are new at Jacob's Well to hear your story, see how I can serve you in any way. Um, maybe you're here and you're not new, but you just need to meet up and connect. Uh, there is a box you can mark there as well uh, that says meet with a pastor. Would love to do that. So please take advantage of that. Would love, would love to spend some time with you. On sabbatical, we traveled quite a bit, and one of our first destinations was the state of Colorado. Uh, we went to Denver, and while we were there, we wanted to visit our friends, the Vasilievs. Some of you may know the Vasilievs. Uh, they are a family that helped plant Jacob's Well Church and later moved on to Denver. They are part of our community group. They are neighbors. Their kids are the same age as our kids, and so we were very close to this family. And while we were there, Alex said to us, he says, if you are going to do one thing in the Colorado area, you have to go to the rapids in Golden. And so we said, okay, all right, we're going to do this. So we went to church with them on Sunday morning, ate lunch with them, and we headed out to Golden, Colorado, which is one of the suburbs of Denver. And we went to this creek called Clear Creek, and it's a creek that, that has tons of rapids in it. It's actually the creek that you see in, in some of the beer commercials, and there are, there are hundreds of people there floating down this creek. They're in inner tubes, they're in kayaks, things of that sorts. But we show up and we, we put down our stuff, our swim bag, our towels and things like that. And we have our inner tubes and we have to share because uh, there aren't enough. But Cooper and I get in the inner tube, my youngest, and we start floating down this creek. And it was awesome. It was, it was fun. There were, like I said, there were rapids. It was chaotic. We would tip over. We'd be, you know, plunged beneath the cold water. It was exciting. And so we would head down this creek, this river, whatever it would be. But at some point we knew we had to get out, and we had to walk back up. So Cooper and I got out of the tube, and we, we stepped out of the creek. We went up. There's a sidewalk where you can walk, walk back up to where you started. And as we were walking back up towards our starting point, we kept stopping at various little beaches along the way because we thought, this is where we started. And then we would go to the next beach and thought, oh, no, no, this is where we started. And then, oh, no, no, this one is where we started. And then we just kept walking and walking and walking. And what we had discovered is that we had drifted a lot further than we had imagined. You know, during sabbatical, I had a similar thought for my spiritual life. I've been drifting down this stream of life. It was wild and exciting and chaotic and fun. And when you go on a sabbatical, there's a time to step out of the stream of life and take a look around. And what I remember discovering in that point is that I had drifted farther from God than I had thought. Maybe you're here and you can resonate with that today. Maybe you're here and you feel far from God. 
You can remember a time where you were so excited to dive into God's word and to, and to encounter God and to have that divine appointment every day and to learn and to hear and to be taught by God. But now it has just become a rote discipline that you do because you're supposed to or it has pretty much dissolved from your life. Maybe you remember a time where going before God and praying to the God of the universe who we do not deserve to pray to was, was an intimate encounter with your heavenly Father who you delighted to sit in his arms and talk to him. Maybe you remember a time in your life where you were on mission for God every day. You weren't just praying, Lord, what do you want for my life? But you're saying, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And you were on mission for him. And it was exciting, it was exhilarating to proclaim the excellencies of the God that you serve. But now your life is consumed with your own agenda of extending your own kingdom, whether it be academically or in business or whatever it might be. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I have drifted farther from God than I had thought. And you're wondering, how do I get back to joyful, intimate relationship with God? That's the question we're going to be addressing today from God's word. If you would, please open up to Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 30. Seven today. It's page 405 in the Red Bible. Reverend Steinbarger preached to us last week from the first half of Nehemiah 9, and he did a great job. Uh, the title of his sermon was True Repentance, and in some ways I'm going to continue that same theme because it's a part of the same prayer of the people of God, a prayer of repentance. But I want to look at this theme of true repentance from this idea of how do I get back to God. So let's read together Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 24 through 37. Nehemiah 9, 24. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land of Canaanites, and gave them into their hands, and their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. And rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from, their, from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. 
but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of the Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for all who are here, all who feel far from you, all who have drifted away, and seek the joy of their salvation. I pray that today would be a day in which they encounter you once again as the God of the universe, but also the Father who tenderly and intimately cares for them and delights in them and rejoices in them. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work on our hardened hearts, to soften us, to renew in us the joy of our salvation and the delight of our God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you get into or come back to a joy-filled, intimate relationship with God? This is what this passage is teaching us today. The nation of Israel had drifted far from God. They had rebelled against God. And now they are seeking to come back to God. And so what Israel does here corporately in returning to God, we are called to do today as the people of God, both individually and as a church, to grow back into our relationship of intimacy with the God of the universe. 
And so that's the question I want to answer today. How do we get back to God? Now, acronyms are cheesy. This is a cheesy acronym, but I want to use the acronym CARS, okay, or CAR, because CARS are the way we get places, all right? So, so CAR, if it, and I want to give you this acronym so that when you are in a place of despair, when you are in a place where you feel far from God and you say, how do I get back to God? Maybe you can remember this cheesy acronym, CAR. So the first one is C, uh, in case you didn't know, all right? C. <laughs> yeah, all right. C, confess your sin without excuse. Look at verse 25 with me. Again, this is their prayer. And they captured four to five cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And then that ominous word, nevertheless. So despite the fact that God took this nomadic, rebellious, wayward people and so richly blessed them with houses full of good things that they did not work for, with vineyards that they did not work for, for orchards that they did not work for, filling them to be fat and happy in his great goodness, a sign of God's blessing. Nevertheless, in the midst of plenty, they were disobedient. And rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. After God had rescued the people of God out of Egypt, he brought them to the promised land that he had promised many years before. And he had blessed their socks ox. Nevertheless, they disobeyed God and they rebelled against God, even in the midst of the blessings of God. Friends, I know sometimes we say, I'm poor. We don't know what it's like to be poor. <laughs> the majority of the world, or, or much of the world, I should say, knows what it's like to be poor. In America, we do not know what it's like to be poor. We live in a nation of bounty, of abundance, to such a great degree that the world has never seen or known before. And none of this is wrong or bad, but what Nehemiah 9 reminds us of is that just because we are surrounded by the blessings of God, it does not make us immune to drifting away from the God who is the giver of all blessings. Just because we have his gifts all around it does not mean that we are in intimacy with the gift giver. In this passage, Israel's rebellion is simply categorized as a refusal to receive and follow God's word. It says that they disobeyed God's word. They rebelled against God's word. They cast God's word aside. And when the prophets came to warn them, against their path of self-destruction with the, the word of God spoken through them, they not only ignored the prophets, they killed the prophets. They rejected God's word. Thomas Jefferson was famous for taking a sharp instrument of some kind, either knife or scissors, and going through the Bible and cutting out the parts of it that he does not like. Now we may scoff at that, and we should, but do we do that in our own hearts and in our own minds? Are there parts of the Bible that we say, you know what, this does not apply to me? Do we do as Israel did? And do we cast parts of the Bible behind our back because we no longer want to apply it to us today, to our culture, to our lives? 
You know, it's interesting because the things that they're repenting of here in Nehemiah 9 and on into Nehemiah 10 are still things that I think our church wants to cast behind us today, that most Christians do. They, repeat, they repent of two major things as you look later in Nehemiah chapter 10, 30. And you see it by what the vows that they take. They vow to, as a part of the repentance, to stop marrying people who do not love and cherish and follow the Lord like they do. But their second act of repentance is to stop laboring on the Sabbath day. I think both of these are things that most Christians in the evangelical church have said, you know what, this is not that important. Maybe these are not the things that you cut out of the scriptures, but what are the things that you ignore that you cut out of the scriptures? You know, we may not agree with God's law all the time, but here's the thing. When you have your own universe, you get to create the law. But this is God's universe, and God's truth reigns, and God's law reigns. And not only does it reign, it is good. It is the best. It is the law that our hearts need to know what it looks like to cherish and follow and delight in our God. It continues, verse 28. But after they had rest, in other words, after God rescued them from their, from their, uh, from their bondage, they did evil again before you. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Then, yet they acted presumptuously, like they were not debtors to the grace of God, and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks, and they would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Verse 34, our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warning that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. You know, what sticks out to me most in this confession of sin is not what is there, but what is not there. In this confession of sin, there are no excuses. There are no qualifications of, Lord, we did this, but it's because we were in this situation. You know, I'm kind of the king of excuses. Whenever I mess up, whenever I do something wrong, I always have a reason why it's someone else's fault. I don't know if you can, you can understand this, but even as a kid, I remember I was up on the balcony of my porch and my dad caught me throwing rocks at my friend Jacob who was down below. And Jacob, just prior to that, was trying to throw rocks up at me but was not coming anywhere close. And so when I got in trouble, I said to my dad, yeah, yeah, I was throwing rocks, it was bad, I'm sorry, but he was throwing rocks at me first. And then we had the bridge talk. You know the bridge talk? Every dad has the bridge talk with their kid. If Jacob jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? Right? I have that dad talk all the time with my kids. I'm so good at creating excuses and saying, yes, I'm sorry, but da-da-da-da-da. Maybe you come to God and you say, Lord, I am so sorry that I had talked so harshly to my children. But if they weren't so rebellious and so disrespectful, I wouldn't do that. Lord, I am so sorry that I talk back to my parents and sneak behind their backs, but, but God, they don't really understand what it's like to be me. Lord, I'm sorry I don't sit with you in prayer and devour your word. 
but I'm just so busy. Lord, I'm sorry that I am so bitter, but my life has just been so difficult. Any of this sound familiar to any of you all? You know, excuses, it's been said of opinions. I'll put excuses in there. Excuses are like armpits. Everyone has two of them, and they both stink. I want to make sure I'm careful here. Don't get me wrong. Situations may explain your propensity towards a certain sin, but they never excuse your sin. Friends, if you want to draw close to your God, you must start by confessing your sin to God without excuses. So that's C, confess your sin. The next letter is A for those who are learning how to spell. Admit God's discipline is righteous. As I read through this passage, there's a lot of reoccurring phrases. One of them is the hand of. So look for it as I read back through these passages. We're reading a lot in repetition, but I want you to to see certain highlights in these passages for each of these points. Verse 26 again. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them, here's the phrase, into the hand of their enemies who made them, notice that word, suffer. Verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them, here it is, to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Verse 30. Many years you bore with them. And warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Notice here that God's discipline, God's judgment upon the people of God that are rebelling against him is simply to remove his protective grace. To allow them to suffer the consequences of their running away from God by giving them into the hand of their enemies. To let their enemies have their way with them, which brings much suffering. Now, now as we look at this and we think about God and we hear that God is good, the question is, is this okay? Is it okay for God to allow suffering in the life of his children? Is this righteous? Is this just? Is this good? Look at verse 33. They said, yet you have been righteous in all that has come Upon us, talking about the exiling, the suffering, the pain. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Verse 34 through 35 through 36 through 37 go on to display how they have acted wickedly and how God has been faithful through it all. Israel is confessing that God's judgment and God's discipline of them is righteous, that it is just, that it is good, that their suffering is a completely fair consequence for their sin. When we were in Eau Claire a few weeks ago, I, I drove downtown and I parked, uh, I parked on the street right by a farmer's market just to visit this farmer's market. And right in front of me, there was a sign that said two-hour parking limit. And so I saw the sign, thought not, not much of it, and I went and I, I went around the, the, um, the farmer's market and got to see that. But then there was this really cool bridge that went over the river. 
So I went over this bridge, over the river. It was beautiful. And then I noticed that this path kind of kept going on to this park. So I went on to this park called Carson Park, I think it is, and then continued down to Water Street and came back down Water Street, went to UWC. They made major renovations, so I sat in there, did some work, came back towards the car, stopped in the coffee shop, did a little bit more work. Well, I come back eight hours later, and there's a ticket on my window. And I suffered the loss of $18.50. But the consequence was just. It was righteous. Right? I had no, nothing to say. I should not have gotten this ticket. I should not have to pay anything. I was gone for way more than two hours. God's law is far weightier than a two-hour parking zone ticket. Our sin and rebellion against God's law has consequences and often leads to suffering. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not saying that if you are suffering right now, it's because you have done some sin and God is disciplining you for that particular sin. Not necessarily, right? I mean, you can think of the book of Job. This was the mistake Job's friends made, wasn't it? They said, Job, you are suffering because there must be some unrepentant sin in your life, right? But that wasn't the case. The reason why Job was suffering wasn't because of his unrighteousness, but his righteousness, if you know the story. If Job's not enough, you can think of that guy in the Bible named Jesus, right? The righteous one, the one who was without sin. Did he suffer? A lot. He suffered a lot, And so just because there is suffering in your life does not mean that that God is disciplining you for some unrepentant sin, but it could be. God could be disciplining you because of unrepentant sin in your life. And so we should at least come and ask the question in the midst of suffering, Lord, is my suffering because of sin, because of something that is unrepentant in my heart? You know, maybe you're here today and you're suffering under, under the stress of finances, Maybe this is God giving you over to, to your idol, to your God of, of comfort. Maybe you've bought too much house or maybe you've done, bought too much card and now you're underneath the stress of that and God's giving you over to your materialism to suffer underneath that false God of pleasure. Or maybe you're here and you're suffering through the plight of a difficult marriage. But it's because you have refused to obey God's command to love your wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. Or to respect your husband and honor him as you are called to honor Christ. Maybe you're here suffering physical pain or loneliness or depression. And it's because you have refused God's calling, God's high calling to go and be reconciled. Seek to be reconciled with someone in your life. I'm not saying that suffering is always due to our sin. But it might be. And we need to ask the question. In the midst of our suffering, Lord, is there something in my heart that I do not see that you are seeking to purge me of? 1 Peter 4, 14 through 15 does a great job of of talking about this. He says this. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, that's suffering. If you're insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's suffering for the sake of righteousness because you did something righteous, because you are living for Jesus. And then the very next verse he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer. And so what he's saying is if you suffer, suffer for loving like Jesus, not for living like Judas. One more thought on this point that I think is very important. We may ask, would a good God allow his children to suffer? 
And the answer is absolutely. Because our Father is so much, interest, so much more interested in capturing our heart than he is about our physical comfort. He wants not just us to be comfortable. He wants us to be intimately connected to him. Verse 26 says it this way. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who you had warned them. For what purpose? In order to turn them back to you. God the Father will do anything to win your heart back to himself, even bring suffering into your life to do so. I have a friend who was mixed up in some bad things, and he went to prison. And prison is tremendous suffering. He's, he's lonely. He misses his family. It's suffering for his family who misses their dad and misses uh, their husband. And when he was asked, do you think it is God's will for you to be in prison? His response was, absolutely. I was headed on a path of destruction, running away from God. And God rescued me by sending me to prison. Revelations 3.19, the Lord says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Hebrews 12 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son, whomever he receives. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? God disciplines us for our good. Church, we have a God that loves us so much, who is so good to us, that with surgical precision, he will bring suffering into our life to purge us from whatever is keeping us from intimacy with him. And so how do we get back to God? We must confess our sin without excusing it or qualifications. We must admit that God's discipline upon us is righteous and it's good for us. And finally, we must rest in God's grace once again. In some ways, the Old Testament is very redundant. There's some cycle that that, that keeps repeating in the Old Testament, and we see it, it repeats here in this passage because they're really walking through the story of the Old Testament, the story of the people of God. See if you can detect this cycle. I'll read verse 27 through 28. Therefore you gave them, talking about their forefathers, into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer, and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. This is talking about the book of Judges, when God sent judges to deliver the people of God from their bondage to their enemies. Gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, after they had been delivered, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Do you see the cycle here? The cycle of the people of God, the cycle of the story of humanity. God richly blesses his people. They're so comfortable in the blessings that they forget about God from whom all blessings flow and they rebel against God. They turn against God. They pursue false idols. They pursue sin. God warns them through prophets, through his scriptures, and yet they refuse to listen to it. And so God gives them over to their enemies. They're under bondage. They're under slavery. They're under suffering. 
And then they finally come to their senses and they realize that life without God is not good. And so they cry out to God, Lord, save us. Lord, rescue us. And God, time and time and time again, comes and delivers them from their bondage. And delivers them from their enslavement. And brings them back into intimacy with him in the promised land. This cycle goes on and on and on throughout the Old Testament. It just continues to go downward. And so the Lord brings greater judgment through the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. And now it was not just local folks that were conquering them and subduing them, but they were being conquered by the greatest empires of the world. They came in and they destroyed Jerusalem. They, they killed many of the people of God. They sent many throughout the uttermost parts of the empire. And God does all of this because he is wooing them back to himself. You know, when you read the Old Testament, the Israelites seem like a bunch of entitled bratty children. God blesses them tremendously and they return their thanks by saying, Lord, I'm going to worship other gods. I'm going to disobey your law. I'm going to go my own way. I mean, when you read it, you're sitting there kind of thinking, come on, guys, like, do you not know how the story ends? Do you not know how this goes? Like if you continue down this path of destruction, it doesn't go anywhere good. Why don't you just stop? Why don't you just obey God? Why don't you just enjoy his blessings? I mean, if I was God, I would probably come to the point where I'd say, I'm done with you guys. Like, like this just keeps happening. But the good news is that I am not God. <laughs> and God is God. And God is far more gracious and loving and merciful than I am. Look at verse 31. It says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. God extended grace even in the worst of suffering for the people of God, by preserving a remnant of his people. Nehemiah is a testimony to that, and the people who gathered to build the wall are a testimony. They are the remnant that God has preserved by his grace, that he has not given up on his people. He has not given up on his promises, but he is bringing them home to restore a beautiful, intimate relationship with them. Friends, we are not so unlike Israel, are we? God has showered us with blessings, so many that we could not count if we tried. And yet, how do we return those blessings? We worship false gods. We chase after sin, sins of materialism, coveting, lusts, unrighteous anger. I mean, if you think about it, some of the sins that you're struggling with today are they not the same sins that you struggled with 10 years, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? And here's what we know. We, we chase after the sin and it leads to misery. We cry out, God, deliver me, and he delivers us by his grace. And then what do we do? We run back to our sin. Proverbs 26, 11 says, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Here's more good news. Nehemiah 9, and really the whole Old Testament and the story of redemption, I think is summarized in verse 17, which is from last week's passage. Nehemiah 9, 17 says this. You can read with me. It says, they, 
God's people refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God. What's the word? What's the word? Ready. Say God's ready. Look at your neighbor. Say God is ready. Look to your other neighbor. Say God is ready. I want you to remember this. God is ready. What's he ready for? He's ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he did not forsake them. To forsake means to abandon, to disown someone. And the only reason we can return to God, to be intimate with God once again, is because God does not forsake his people. No matter how many times you have run away, no matter how far you have run away, God does not forsake you. Not because you have learned your lesson, not because you finally have your act together. We know that's not true, but the reason why God does not forsake you is because there is one who was forsaken in your behalf. Jesus is the only man to walk on earth who has not forsaken God. The only one who did not deserve to be forsaken by God. And yet at the cross, as he bears our sin, as he bears our shame, and he hangs there on the cross, what does he cry out? Eli, Eli, lema sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that you and I can cry out with the apostle Paul, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Christian, the reason why we can always return to God, always return to sweet, wonderful, joy-saturated communion with God is because Jesus was forsaken on our behalf. And because Jesus took on our forsakenness, God has not, cannot, and never will forsake his children, ever. Take it from Nehemiah. God is ready. God is ready today to forgive. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Let me end with this. This, uh, this past summer, all four of my kids went away to camp, to Lake Lundgren Bible Camp. If you don't never heard of it, it's a great camp. Highly recommend it. But they would go away, and I'd be so excited about them coming back. Almost giddy to, to just hug on them and kiss on them and love on them and ask them, hey, how, how did camp go? What did you learn? What was your favorite part? Anything hard? Who did you hang out with? I just wanted to know more about what was going on in their life. Well, yesterday, our, our last kid came home, Corbin, and and I asked those questions, and I got to hug on him and kiss on him. It's probably embarrassing, but I don't care. Love him. Well, we got home, and he took a shower for the first time all week. <laughs> Sorry, probably didn't need to include that. Um, but he was so tired, so he just went to sleep. And, and I, I missed my son, so I just went in the bed right next to him and slept next to him because I just wanted to be in his presence. Friends, it does not matter how far you have drifted from God or how long you have been gone. God is waiting for you with great anticipation. God is waiting for you to come home. 
God is waiting for you to come back to him. God is ready to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness. God is waiting, ready to pour out his fatherly love upon you. Won't you come back to God today? Confess your sin without excuses. Admit God's discipline on you is righteous and good, but then rest in God's unending, repeated grace once again. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess we are, we're like people at that stream who hop on our raft, get busy in life, carried away with the current, and, and to one extent or another, we drift from you. We thank you that you are always ready. You are always ready to bring us back to yourself. You are always ready to forgive. You are always ready to talk with us, to love on us, to commune with us, that you Look for us with great anticipation. Lord God, I pray that if there are those here today who feel far from you, that they would take time just to, just to get away, just to be by themselves, to, to go and to confess their, their waywardness, to say, Lord, I've, I've done this. I've, I've run for you. I've, I've just been apathetic towards you. God, forgive me. And may they turn back into the arms of their loving Father who is ready once again to extend grace and mercy and steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.